Hello, this is Stephen King. Well, sometimes that is better. Hi, Georgie. I'm your number one fan. Get busy living. Get busy dying. Here's Johnny. <laughs> So, welcome back to the Constant Reader Podcast with me, uh, your host, Richard Shepard. And before we get to the discussion of the day, which is The Dead Zone with Mike Munzer, I'd just like to give a shout out to uh, Deanna Chapman of Chat Cemetery, one of my favourite Stephen King podcasts. And I'd give a shout out to uh, all the people who wrote in saying how much they enjoyed my conversation with Lee Gambin last month about uh, Christine. And we're definitely going to have Lee back on again to talk about Cujo, about which uh, he's also written a book. Uh, the Christine book is called Hell Hath No Fury Like Her, and the Cujo book is called Nope, Nothing Wrong Here, and they're both available on Amazon, as well as his book about killer scarecrows and his book about uh, the ecological horror film. So they're all well worth picking up, as you probably got the impression from last month's podcast. Lee is a, is a very engaging writer, is um, academic without being dull, and uh, popularist without pandering. So pick those up at Amazon or wherever you buy books. Uh, today's guest is, if anything, even more exciting and even more accomplished. It's the host of one of my favourite podcasts, The Evolution of Horror, Mr. Mike Munzer. Hello, Mike. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's so lovely to have you on. Like I said, I'm a huge fan of The uh, Evolution of Horror, and I recommend all my readers, viewers, to uh, check it out if they haven't done so already. Um, I know it's a seasonal thing. What season are you doing at the moment? Uh, so yeah, we do. We uh, we split the podcast up into seasons, like slasher movies and ghost stories and that kind of thing. We're currently doing a bit of a weird one. It's a sort of I've called it the Mind and Body series, and it's basically a sort of mix of uh, body horror, sort of classic, sort of Cronenbergian stuff, which goes nice. well with what we're going to talk about now, and uh, and sort of more psychological horror, horror of the mind. So David Lynch is a good example of that, and and also just sort of more yeah, sort of psychological thrillers and things like that, I suppose. That's very cool. And of course, you had um, our friend of the podcast, Steph McKenna, on talking about a Razorhead, which was I a wonderful did. conversation. She yeah. was brilliant. Yeah, it was so much fun. What a, what a film to, to try and unpick and talk <laughs> about as well. It was so great. Yeah. And it was her first podcast as well, with, with you anyway. I mean, that's, that's got to be a, a hell of a, <laughs> hell of a proposition. It dropped her in the deep end of it, I think, yeah. with a Razorhead, but she was amazing. I can't wait to have her back again. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's been so much fun actually discussing some of those sort of slightly weirder films in the horror genre, actually. I've loved it. I get it. Do you have a, a particular favourite of the current season that you're running? Well, I am a big Lynch fanboy, so it probably would be one of those, maybe Lost Highway or possibly blue velvet um nice. but also yeah. cronenberg too i mean maybe uh videodrome or the fly yeah i mean it's hard to pick it would be one of those <laughs> i get it i get it it's all good and so speaking of david cronenberg we're going to segue seamlessly into today's discussion which is about his 1983 adaptation of stephen king's novel the dead zone so the thing about The Dead Zone is it's often referred to as uh, a David Cronenberg film for people who don't like David Cronenberg of a Stephen King story for people who don't like Stephen King. <laughs> uh, do you kind of see any truth kind of ringing in those uh, in those sentiments? Yeah, I do, actually. I think that's a really interesting way to put it, because it's, it's certainly, I, I mean, particularly the Cronenberg point. I mean, obviously, mm. David Cronenberg is very well known for for body horror, this kind of subgenre that he almost sort of pioneered, and his movies were so fascinated with 
with the body with the inner workings of the body and they were you know movies like the fly um and of course the brood and videodrome yeah. these movies about people's kind of internal states being kind of um fit sort of uh manifesting on the outside i suppose and uh yeah it does seem like the dead zone i suppose doesn't have quite that element of body horror that the same as that that a lot of his other movies do so it doesn't quite fit the themes although you can certainly still see the cronenberg stamp i think on this movie but i think it's maybe perhaps it's a little bit more accessible than some of cronenberg's other movies and the stephen king thing i don't know actually it maybe because i've always known it as a stephen king story i find it hard to i don't know whether i would necessarily say it doesn't fit stephen king's world you know mm. it feels so firmly within it not just because of you know that it's castle of rock castle and all rock. of that kind of thing but <laughs> yeah i don't know i don't know what do you think about that well i i think you're definitely right about the cronenberg thing because up to this point he's made you know the films that are the benchmark of body horror so he's made a uh, rabid shivers uh the brood all of which have this very fascinating idea of like the internal struggle becoming like an external thing so the problems of the mind become the problems of the body. And with the dead zone, you've got, again, you've got a very kind of wounded protagonist, a man who's got a deeply conflicted psyche. And in the book, it's actually kind of specified that he has a brain tumor growing in his mind. Mm. And it'd be interesting to see if Cronenberg had kind of mentioned that a bit more and gone down that route, what he would have come up with, probably like externalized the tumor so it's coming out of his ears or something. <laughs> yes, exactly. But it does have, like you say, some things which are like quintessentially Cronenbergian like for example that the setting it's you know it's um Toronto in the winter so it, it looks a lot like Rabbit it looks a lot like Shiv it's got that cold chilly kind of mm. aesthetic to it mm-hmm. and it's also got the actors like Nicholas Campbell who, who worked with Cronenberg before and was actually Cronenberg's first choice to play um Johnny Smith the protagonist oh, but yeah. instead got to play the serial killer Frank Dodds in this right yeah 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 but, you know, I think when people say it's not a Cronenberg film, I think they mean it has a certain amount of restraint. I would say that's that's fair, yeah. And and I think it's it's difficult these days to say, you know, what is and isn't Cronenbergian because Cronenberg's gone off in such different directions these days with movies like A Dangerous Method and Cosmopolis and Maps to the Stars. He doesn't really fit that sort of body horror mould anymore. But it's certainly, like you said, if you look at the films that came before this film, up until this film, it certainly feels more restrained and more accessible, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. But again, it also deals with like Cronenbergian ideas about um, the body turning against you, about not being able to trust your own perception of things as well. But as to kind of the Stephen King thing, yeah, I I, I never understood that criticism that was levelled against it, but I saw it a lot during my research of this. Mm. I think because it's not like, it's a very interior story. It's yeah. not like, it's not like Carrie where there's like this great big lashing out at the end. And it's not like the stand where it's kind of this epic that kind of encompasses everything or even yeah. like it, where you have that kind of climactic battle. I think the ending of the dead zone is, is, is it's, it's kind of weird. It's kind of depressing in a way. It is, because isn't it? Yeah. It, not only does your hero die, Johnny Smith is kind of this likable, nice guy, but also everybody's going to like think of him as being kind of a dick. 
Yeah, I know. I mean, I guess the only kind of the silver lining is is the is the way in which um, the politician kind of uh, holds up the the, the, child, the <laughs> poor the poor infant um, in order to protect it. Greg Stilson obviously holds up the infant to protect himself, and uh, I guess that kind of ruins his his career and his you know ending the world, doesn't it? So I suppose yeah. he's done the right thing ultimately. But you're right; it's a bit of a downer ending in some ways. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I suppose I was kind of looking at it in terms of when it was made, and you're looking at like the assassination of where well, the attempted assassination of uh, Reagan oh, by this yeah. deluded guy who uh, John Hinckley, who was also said to have like a brain tumor problems going on, did it to impress Jodie Foster after things Taxi Driver. Wow. And it's it's odd to think they're going to kind of look back at Johnny Smith after his trial of Stills and say, oh yeah, he was, you know, his his ex girlfriend was on the Stilson campaign and she was probably in love with him, so he decide to kill it to kind of impress him <laughs> yeah exactly yeah it's kind yeah. of sad like this 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 really sweet guy is kind of going to be vilified like that i even, know he's such a, just kill himself he's yeah. such a lovely guy isn't he johnny smith he's such a kind of warm friendly hero actually of this story and and you know i don't always think of christopher walken as playing characters quite so warm and likable <laughs> um but he's i think he's brilliant in this as well he's so he's got such a kind of magnetic look about him anyway christopher walken but he does yeah. this character of johnny very well i think yeah he's also one of the few um kind of heroes in films apart from uh, uh the the dude lebowski who spends most of the film in a bathrobe which is a lovely touch <laughs> it's very true yeah it's very true yeah he's got his lovely aesthetic <laughs> <laughs> he makes it work it's a good look <laughs> yeah exactly yeah and uh, but um uh, a bit of trivia for you do you know who the first do you know who stephen king's suggestion the first choice to play uh, johnny smith was i don't know yeah, well, yeah, you, you, you probably won't believe me, but this is this is a, a fact. It was Bill Murray. Oh wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, so it's kind of a Groundhog Day, I suppose. I don't know. It has that kind of similar kind of similar vibe to it. I don't know, but yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? It would have been relatively early in Bill Murray's career, wouldn't it? And and maybe you know something like that a bit more of a straight role i i guess he could do i mean he's got that very good sort of deadpan way about him bill murray um mm. and like i say in some ways this feel, this role feels quite unusual for christopher walken too so who knows maybe bill murray would have paid like would have uh pulled it off who knows it would have been lovely to see wouldn't it like, yeah I, I can just imagine that because i mean murray's has he done ghostbusters at this point or is that i don't think so after? no i think that was after yeah so it's just like Saturday Night Live and a few kind of bit parts. Although he did do um, The Razor's Edge. Did you ever see that one? I didn't see that one, no. Well, it's a, an adaptation of a Somerset Maugham novel, so it's very serious. Uh. And that's probably what was in kind of King's head, because he's always got these ideas about first-choice casting. Yeah. So for The Shining, he wanted, I think, um, John Voight or uh, Michael Moriarty to play Jack Torrance. Oh, interesting. Because famously, he thought Nicholson was like too crazy. And it'd be like, yeah, too bad. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, he's he's not wrong, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but I mean, it is a great cast for this film, isn't it? It is, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think everyone plays their roles very well. Um, I think Brooke Adams is really good as, as the character of Sarah as well. She's great. And, yeah, you know, you really kind of believe them and sympathise with them and their struggle, you know, and what they go through in the first act of the film really adds to the sort of emotional weight of this story, I think. And that's what does make it feel a bit more Stephen King to me. I, you know, the really interesting thing that we've talked about a lot with Cronenberg on my podcast is that he's often thought of as quite a cold filmmaker. His movies mm. are 
so fascinating, but they're often very clinical. And with that comes a certain amount of distance, I think, to his characters. And, you know, Stephen King, obviously, a lot of the time has the opposite reputation. <laughs> I think a lot of people say that he's too sentimental at times, right? He's too schmaltzy. Um, mm. And so actually pitting these two together um, kind of <laughs> makes it kind of reigns them both in maybe a little bit, you know, but it adds that little bit of warmth to what isn't normally there in a Cronenberg movie. And maybe adds a bit of coldness to to, to a, a Stephen King story as well. So I think it's it's pulled off really well. But I do love that sort of tragic romance, I suppose, of these two characters at the centre of this. Yeah, they are very kind of um, down to earth. I mean, yes. like, obviously the guy's name is John Smith, so he is meant to be like a very you know yes every man normal guy kind of character. Yeah, absolutely. It's set up really wonderfully, so because you, you see him at the beginning and he's with his class reciting Edgar Allan Poe and yeah. telling them to read Sleep, The Legend of Sleep, which, which is a teacher I would have loved back in the day. Also, I just I was thinking, how funny is it that Christopher Walken ended up playing the Headless Horseman in Tim Burton's <laughs> Sleepy Hollow as well? It's a weird coincidence. <laughs> but he hasn't played Poe yet. He's, <laughs> he's, got, he's got to play Poe first, exactly. <laughs> but you're right, it is like an almost archetypal uh, Norman Rockwell life that he kind of has to the point of the accident with yes. his, his lovely girlfriend and going on carnivals and things like that it it, it it really is quite sentimental but then you do have that Cronenbergian distance and yeah I, I think yeah Cronenberg does keep a certain distance from his from his actors and sometimes that works mm. I mean I think it works with I don't think it works as well as something like Scanners no, I think that's the thing, and I think it it gets it, his films get better at that because I think The Fly is a beautiful kind of tragic love story more than anything else really, and I think with that film he really is focusing in on the on the characters and the emotional heart of the film. But particularly in his early career, movies like Rabid and Shivers mm. and Scanners and maybe The Brood, although to a lesser extent The Brood, but they are more they're they're ensemble pieces. They're they're they are less. I think they seem less interested in a kind of emotional heart and characters than they do just these kind of big ideas and and the sort of yeah the sciency clinically sort of horror stuff I suppose at the center of it. Mm. Yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Kind of, we get to this point in I think eighty three when he makes this film, and he also makes Videodrome, mm. and then The Fly I think in eighty six. So it's obviously he's still working out those kind of the ideas of the body horror and the idea of the externalization of interior yes. kind of problems. But then he kind of, he, like you say, he shifts away from that, which I think is fascinating. It's like he, he doesn't keep on doing the same trick over and over again, which I think is a, a fascinating thing about Cronenberg. Um, same with Lynch. Yeah. He, he, he has that thing where he exposes the dark underbelly of like suburbia, but then he'll move on and do something completely different, like the straight story or something like that. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It almost feels like with Cronenberg, he kind of he achieved everything he wanted to achieve. Finally, with The Fly, he kind of made the ultimate body horror that he'd been sort of working towards <laughs> his whole career. Because after that, he kind of veers off. You go to Dead Ringers next after The Fly, which is yeah. a wonderful film, and it and it has elements of body horror, but it's already starting to lessen at that point. And then and then we go into the nineties with things like existence and crash and again mm -hmm. it kind of it it starts kind of it, it it's less horror i suppose and and other stuff he's he's more interested in other stuff by that point you know and it feels like the fly is is almost like the end point of that sort of body horror phase you know mm. and I, you know i think that's a hallmark of these kind of great what we call horror directors people like john carpenter or david cronenberg they, they can do the other thing as well. Yes. There is something at horror that kind of brings them back and gets them their start. 
but they can also play outside of that, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And also do like the, the variations like Carpenter can do, you know, the fog, which is quite a subtle mood piece. Mm. But then something like Escape from New York, which is an over the top, yes. apocalyptic, mad kind of, you know, blowout, which I absolutely love. And exactly. yeah, Cronenberg, I think it's, even though it's a, a job for hire for him, I, I think he still gives it that professionalism. Yeah, I, I I agree. And I think it's lovely actually to watch him, you know, adapt a Stephen King novel and do something a little bit more conventional, maybe. Um, and it, and he's he's clearly just such an accomplished director. And he's a very good director. And even as a director for hire, which you feel like he is on this story, he does mm. such a good job of it. He tells a really good story. He does it so effectively. I think this film works really well. I think it's, you know, one of the better Stephen King adaptations, personally. Oh, definitely. It's interesting about the, the gun for high things we were talking last month about the film of um, Christine. Yes, it's the exact same thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. John Carpenter said, oh, it's just a job, you know, and you're just doing a job here. You know, he doesn't, obviously, he does it really well because he's John Carpenter. Yeah. But to him, it was just like, we'll pay you this amount of money to do this. And he's like, yeah, fine, whatever. Yeah, yeah it's interesting, isn't it? And Christine feels more still it still feels very much like a, a john carpenter film in its music mm. and its look and you know more so than the dead zone feels like a cronenberg film i think which is really interesting i don't know why that is but i think um yeah carpenter's style almost naturally fits stephen king i think in a way yeah it's well it's interesting that in the marketing uh of this film it was always stephen king's the dead zone yes and for christine it was john carpenter's christine that's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder why that is. But it, it does feel like Carpenter and King are a kind of perfect marriage in a way. I mean, even when you look at the kind of um, TV shows and films these days that kind of draw upon that nostalgia, like Stranger Things. Mm-hmm. Stranger Things is almost 50% Stephen King and 50% John Carpenter. It feels like, you know, it's yeah. kind of like exactly those two, you know? No, they're the kind of the touchstone, I think, for this, these kind of 80s revival films are always uh, yes. Halloween and It. And yes. they, they always kind of go from that kind of point and it's that's the aesthetic down you know exactly yeah. exactly yeah so uh what, what else did you kind of uh, um like about some because for me i think the the score is actually really good in this yeah the score's lovely isn't it as well yeah i, I think it, it creates a real sense of mood i i love the kind of the the, the mood that this this movie creates because you know it's a it's a funny it's a funny story structurally isn't it i think the way it's kind of almost feels episodic you know you mm. kind of you've got your first act your second act and your third act and they almost don't really you know particularly the middle act where there's the serial killer on the loose kind of doesn't really feel like it fits the rest of the film in a way um but um so the story is is kind of you know it's a little bit weaving and 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 roaming but i think the the like you say the score the music that overall kind of mood and atmosphere that that uh that cronenberg creates really kind of makes it feel whole i think and and, um, and brings it all together yeah, there's some lovely kind of oboe work in this. You know, mm. it's that kind of chilling low noise as they're kind of trudging over the snow. And I think this was, it wasn't Howard Shaw who does most of Cronenberg's film. I think it was actually Michael Kamen. Right. Who kind of, you know, he's kind of more known for working with Pink Floyd and people like that. And it's got the idea of like the 
the mood piece, you know, that kind of slightly ambient quality to it where you don't really notice the score very much. Yes, it's that's there. true. It's it's not too in your face, is it? Again, not not some, not like a John Carpenter where you feel like you always really notice the John Carpenter <laughs> score, you know, and it's oh, always yeah. so John escape, Carpenter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, with, with this, it is a little bit more subtle. It's a bit more organic. Um, but it's cold as well at times and, and, and it really suits that sort of cold look, that snowy landscape that we're in. Obviously, again, that's that really interesting thing where you've got so many Stephen King stories, of course, set in the sort of Maine and that area. But Cronenberg, of course, always at this point filming his movies in Canada too. So mm-hmm. again, the two feel like they, they must go quite well, like hand in hand with each other in a way. Um, and that sort of, yeah, that sort of cold north of the North America sort of border uh, there, I think, comes across really well in this film. Oh, yeah, I think the look of both places is kind of very similar. I mean, it looks yeah. like it looks like what I imagine Maine to look like. You know? Exactly. Yeah. When I picture Castle Rock, I kind of picture that bandstand, and I picture kind of these long, winding roads going through the snow and things like that. And I, I think that was kind of really well done. But going to what you were saying earlier about the idea that it's like an episodic film, I think that's that's a really interesting structure for it, because kind of the the triptych thing, you know, where he's like he has the accident, gets his powers, kind of learns how to use them, and then has this kind of grand confrontation at the end. It's almost like a superhero film, isn't it? It is actually. I was thinking that too. It could easily be an origin, a superhero origin movie in a way, couldn't it? And funnily enough, it's like Spider Man, isn't it? It is. And funnily <laughs> enough, we said something so similar on my podcast about the Fly, uh, David Cronenberg's The Fly, which again could feel like a superhero or supervillain <laughs> origin story. You know, again, like Spider Man getting bit, you know, a radioactive, you know, bite from an insect or whatever, and it transforms him. And I think, yeah, there is something very similar to, to this as well in that regard. Him learning his powers and learning how they work and then finally learning how to use them to literally save the world right i mean it is a kind of superhero arc yeah Mm. and it's be interesting like if he got just a bit less fly in the machine he could have been a great superhero right (laughs) yes exactly if only (laughs) (laughs) i would would love to say it would be better seeing the fly too anyway which is a which is a dreadful film (laughs) (laughs) so was this like the uh, i assume you kind of rewatched recently the dead zone yeah, I so I rewatched it today before we had this conversation. Oh, but actually, that. before that, it had been quite a number of years. I can't remember the last time I saw it. It would have been quite a few years ago. But I, uh, you know, it's it really is one that stuck in my memory. It kind of it was exactly as I remembered it in a way. Although I did actually remember Martin Sheen's sort of section of the film being more of the film i'm always quite surprised at how long it takes before we finally meet martin sheen's character Mm. um which i think for me is my favorite part of the of the story and the darkest part of the story and also just as an aside i've been re-watching the west wing where martin sheen (laughs) plays the loveliest most you know liberal uh like the kind of perfect picture perfect you know american government being portrayed you know um so it's quite funny to watch uh to watch this and be like oh this is this is not what i want to see from a young president jed bartlett you know (laughs) (laughs) there's a wonderful clip where he said i had a vision i'm gonna be president of the united states okay yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly it's so funny isn't it but he does have that he has that sort of presidential way about him for some reason martin sheen doesn't he? even in this as greg stilson you can kind of believe him as a politician you know even an evil one (laughs) well one of the things i've always found interesting about this film is that um uh Johnny's girlfriend, she doesn't seem like a bad person, but she obviously like implicitly trusts this guy. Yes. yes. As, as does her husband. They obviously like have a great deal of affection and they, they believe in, in Greg Stilson. So it's, it's interesting that he does have that 
that charisma and that kind of inbuilt charm, you know. And, you know, I, I, I read a lot of um, very recent reviews comparing him to uh, Donald Trump. I, was I, think, just I think that about kind of misses the point. Yeah, yeah. But but do you know what? I, I, I was, I, I've written that down in front of me as my notes as well because <laughs> I did it did feel a bit Trumpy at times, didn't it? And I like, you know, the just little things like the way he kind of, you know, people talk about him as, you know, this kind of man who acts like he's a man of the people, but really he's not really, he's got selfish True. motivations. Even the hats, he was giving people hats, you know, when yeah. I was thinking, oh my God, that's weird. It's a lovely it? affectation of, you know, I'm a working man. I'm, you know, I'm yeah. wearing a three piece suit and a, like an expensive overcoat, but I'm going to put a hard hat on. And then yeah. you'll be like, oh yeah, okay, this guy's one of us. Yeah. I know, I know. And it's so funny. I mean, you only have to follow Stephen King on Twitter, don't you, to know what his feelings about Donald <laughs> Trump and that's the thing and you, you you do get the feeling that Stephen King genuinely is somebody that is cons- like w- was and maybe still is concerned about that kind of thing in America right and these kind of people getting in power and this kind of stuff happening in the world you know oh no he's very astute and like I say if you have you read did you read like the recent uh, his recent work no I haven't actually no oh in the let it bleed um if it bleeds sorry the last um quartet of novellas he released it, it's it's quite political and you know you, mm. you do kind of he does nail his colours to the mask, which I think is, is very cool. I think you know, I, I'm always interested to know. I don't think artists should hide their political affiliations or their feelings, whatever they are. No, and to be honest, they usually come out in some way or another in their work, don't they? I mean, I well, think... Yeah. Well, if you're that... James Woods, you're just constantly uh, constantly tweeting... Oh, my God, exactly. non-stop. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But then also you could be certain... There are certain filmmakers out there like, um, I don't know, S. Craig Zahler or people who you just think, where well, they don't even need to say stuff per- like publicly. You know that they're... <laughs> <laughs> you know that they're more right leaning or whatever, you know, and it's uh, but it's interesting, yeah. But I can still love Bone Tomahawk. I still think that's a great. Film. Oh, totally. I mean, you know, no matter what we think of him, he's still actually quite a good filmmaker. That's the thing. But uh, yeah, same yeah. with James Woods. I mean, I always think of him as as Max Rand from Videodrome. That's yes. like my my. Uh, go to for james woods well and in I videodrome he just ignore the rest yes exactly and and max in videodrome is to be honest he's quite a scuzzy horrible man isn't he oh, so yeah. i mean he kind of <laughs> james woods pulls that off pretty well oh bless him <laughs> oh dear but going back to the cast i mean if you look kind of beyond the, the main cast there's some lovely kind of side i mean herbert lom is in it and i love herbert lom because he's Oh, one of those yeah. guys who came up in the 60s and 70s and was, of course, in um, Asylum. Yes, yes. Playing he... a different sort of uh, doctor there. <laughs> yeah, he's very good, isn't he? And he's slightly more... He is slightly more old school in his uh, in his performance, I think, mm. which is very interesting. He has got that slightly more over the top nature of somebody maybe that was in genre movies in the fifties or sixties. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but actually, it's lovely. I think he's great to watch, and he's he's brilliant in this. Yeah, he's got such gravitas, and his voice is kind of pitch low. So, Johnny, I need to talk to you. Yes. Oh God, you stop and listen. You do stop and listen. Yes. You know, it's wonderful. It's very good. Yeah. Mm. And it's he doesn't have any dialogue in that scene, but the scene where he calls his mother after finding out she's still alive it's, it's absolutely beautiful it's such a, a sweet scene it's a lovely moment isn't it because again i think it's you know when the film starts the story starts you think that he might be some sort of i don't know sinister doctor in some <laughs> way and of course he's not at all he's kind of his best friend throughout this isn't he he's uh and um yeah uh, it's a lovely it's a lovely moment and actually you know it's really nice to see people like uh tom skerritt pop up as well yeah, in this film right um, yeah. from alien and that's really interesting <laughs> to see him i had to really i had to look it up actually because i was i spent the majority of the film going where do i know him you know <laughs> I, I, you know, I knew i recognized him um, tom skerritt does some great stuff he's a fine actor you yeah, know yeah. he was in 
in um, he was in a great episode of uh, Kolchak the Night Stalker, mm, mm-hmm. in which he plays a politician who sells his soul to the devil and then gets assassinated at the end. So oh, it's kind of a nice, circular, you know, nature yeah. of these things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And of course, uh, Colleen Dewhurst is in it. Uh, Nicholas Campbell's in it. There were there's some great there's some great they, they look great they they look real they look kind of gritty you know not not ugly but they they, they give the they give it realistic uh intent you know they do they do and actually the world looks quite lived in i think i think the production design's good as well i mean when we go into these some of these homes and these weird weird decor in some of their homes and things there's a lot you know. of macrame and uh, yes yeah things have been made i really love the scene when they go in and get and get the you know the serial killer the castle rock killer and there's that sort of weird sort of green lighting in their hallway when they go in and have that sort of shootout and uh and all of the stuff that's in uh dodd's you know room is bedroom and everything it's uh, it's very creepy i love the sort of the world they've created here yeah, it's a bit Norman Bates, that kind of uh, that <laughs> yeah. sequence, isn't it? it? It's explained more in the book that um, his mother is, is a, a sadist oh. and kind of mutilates uh, Dodd's genitals when he's a young boy to stop him uh, masturbating. Oh, wow. Kind of, <laughs> I know, it's, it's, it's intense stuff, man. It's intense oh, my stuff. God, yeah. Yeah, and that, that, that obviously they only scratched the surface of that in the film, but you can tell she's she's creepy as anything in, that, in the sort of brief moments we get with her in that film. So, yeah, it's mm. great. I was going to say it's probably one of the most, um, you know, uh, uh, toe curling, uh, kind of uh, nail scratching uh, suicides in history that uh, uh, Dodds does when they finally catch up to him. But for anybody who hasn't seen it, he takes a pair of um, scissors, opens up the blade, and then kind of balances it on a surface, oh. and then brings his his, his head down. What way to go <laughs> on the blade of the scissors? So I. Firstly, I, you have to be very determined to kill yourself to do it like that. I know. There, there are probably easier ways to kind of do it. Surely <laughs> there are easier ways. I know. It's, uh, that is, that's a moment of pr- pretty nasty Cronenbergian body horror in a way there, isn't it? Yeah, it's, um, it's pretty Yeah, in a film without that. much gore, that, that is yes. the, the one moment you're like, oh my God, that's... Uh... <laughs> yeah, that's nasty, isn't it? And you don't you don't even really see it, but it just needs to be implied. You know, when you see him sort of lining the scissors up and just sort of lining himself up with it and opening his mouth and everything, you just think, oh, oh god, gosh. yeah. You can kind of feel it tickling the top of your, yeah. <laughs> top of your mouth, can't you? Oh, oh my god, <laughs> very grim. <laughs> disgusting, disgusting. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. So, well, was there anything? So, coming back to it after watching it. Um, I mean, how did you feel about it when you first saw it? Were you were you a kid when you first saw it, or was it I was young? probably a teenager, and actually, I think I um I think the first time I saw it, I was a little bit disappointed that it wasn't more of a horror film. I think at mm. the time when I was seeking out, you know, films that had names like Stephen King and David Cronenberg attached, I think I wanted this maybe to be a little <laughs> bit more dark and twisted than it was. Uh, like we've already talked about, it's it's a little bit more reined in um, in some regards. But I've liked this film more and more every time I've seen it, actually, and. Um, like I said, the the we've touched upon it already, but watching it again today, post Trump, I thought was quite <laughs> an interesting experience, to be honest. And there was a little bit more that I saw there that kind of chilled me a little bit, to be perfectly honest. But um, but I, you know, other than that, no, I, I I find it a really interesting, entertaining watch every time I watch it. You know, um, I I think the the characters are so interesting, the performances are so good, and there's so much going on in this film. Like we've already talked mm. about, it's like three stories in one. Mm. That you, you you know you can kind of just sort of go along for the ride and just enjoy it. And there are so many moments I forget about until I rewatch it. You know. Yeah, I think it is. It, it is a it is a great film. It's coming to the end of like what I liked. What we 
discussed before on this podcast. It's like the the first wave of great Stephen King adaptations. Yes. So beginning with like Carrie, The Shining, uh, The Dead Zone, um, Salem's Lot, and Christine. Mm-hmm. And then it, it goes bad after that. But at this point, you're still getting like really interesting A-list directors attaching themselves to Stephen King projects. Yes, because in terms of uh, the sort of genre stuff um, that, that Stephen King adaptations, they do go a bit off the boil after this, don't they? Because I know we had things like uh, Stand By Me, right? But, but, yeah, but, but they have the... Misery and, Shaw- and Shawshank. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It gets to this point where it's few and far between, you know? Yes, and I suppose around the time of Misery and Shawshank, there were also all those TV adaptations, right? You had the, t- the TV miniseries of It and things mm. like that, and the, the Tommy Knockers and all those other things <laughs> that were um, just... <laughs> and a... also the director video kind of wave, like sometimes they come back and the mangler and things like that which you know are often not made for the for for purposes of artistic integrity shall we say no and it's interesting isn't it that in the space of 10 years where they've gone from sort of stanley kubrick adapting stephen king stories to straight to video or tv adaptations it's um it's a shame that 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 happened so quickly in a way Mm, but I, i i as i was saying last month i think we are kind of teasing away like another maybe golden age of king adaptations oh definitely yeah because we've got um yeah uh well uh, it the new version of it yeah I, I, i'm not quite sure how you feel about that but i think the first part is certainly very very good yeah i like i i enjoyed both parts um but they're both particularly the second one just totally bonkers right but <laughs> um but i kind of enjoyed them for what they are i mean personally i having grown up being absolutely traumatized by tim curry's it um, <laughs> i i will never that will always top it for me but i hi georgie yeah <laughs> but i did i did think the it films were marvelous but actually the stephen king adaptation recently i really really loved was mike flanagan's doctor sleep i thought that oh, was yes. tremendous absolutely tremendous did you see the director's cut oh i loved it even more i loved I it absolutely loved it it was three hours i could have watched another three on top of that mm. i really loved it yeah, it does what I what I think a lot of people thought was absolutely impossible, which is to reconcile the Kubrick's film with King's novel. I know how brilliant is that. I know, how, yeah, <laughs> I know. Mike Flanagan is a genius, actually, when it comes to that kind of thing, and he now is the sort of go-to guy for Stephen King, isn't he? Because of course, Gerald's Game as well, which I thought was tremendous and really scary. Yep. Yeah. Uh, you know, I will happily watch anything that uh, Mike Flanagan throws at me, but even more so if he does Stephen King. You know, I think it's great. No, I was very excited because uh, our next episode is going to be a discussion of the novel Revival, and Flanagan's now attached to kind of direct that. And that is a. Have, have you read Revival? Oh, I haven't. No. Oh, it's very good. It's it, it's very short. It'll only take you a couple of days. It's it's kind of um, it's 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 got that typical likable king realism thing and then segues into this extraordinarily dark lovecraftian arthur macken kind of uh other world beyond the world we know kind of vibe to it it's oh, wow. probably the scariest thing he's written in a long time and if, if flanagan's at the helm i i, I have no fear that it's going to be uh, anything but um anything but genius so amazing yeah can't wait can't wait and also we've had the recent TV adaptations of The Outsider and Mr. Mercedes, which I think have always also been of um, oh, excellent yes. quality. Yeah. Yes, very good. Yeah, The Outsider was a very 
unusual, strange story, wasn't it? I loved it. It was great. Mm, that's strange. So, uh, but, I mean, they're also remaking a lot of these things. The Pet Cemetery one I thought was dreadful. But, oh, um, yeah, that was a shame, yeah. Do you think it's worth maybe uh, having another crack at the Dead Zone? Do you think that might be ripe for a, uh, a remake? Maybe, yeah, maybe. maybe. Like you I say, think, there's a lot of political topicality to it. Maybe. I think that's really interesting, the political um, the political subtext. I, you know, part of me would be a bit sad that... Because I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with the Cronenberg one, to be perfectly mm. honest, you know. Um, I, there are, like, like we've discussed, a lot of Stephen King adaptations that didn't work that can. I'm happy for them to be readapted. But there are some where I think you don't really need to touch... Brian De Palma's Carrie, you don't really need to touch Cronenberg's um, The Dead Zone, you know, you don't really need to touch Carpenter's Christine, I think, you know. There yeah, are, but there they, they did keep on touching Carrie, oh, and uh, it, I was, know. it was not, not, a, not, a, not a fine thing. No, it's know. terrible, isn't it? So, no, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I'll, I would be more than happy if we don't ever see a reboot <laughs> of The Dead Zone um, or a re-adaptation, but, um, but you know, I, 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 equally, if it did happen, I would be absolutely there opening night to see it you know for sure. <laughs> of course yeah of course. <laughs> <laughs> as long as they don't act you know as long as they don't make it like a backdoor superhero origin story which is more something that i can see people doing today right in this day and age let's franchise it well they, they always talk about they talk about doing uh, it sequels but like not based on the books and things like that it's yes. no, don't, just, it's, well it's not... and actually the one thing i did think actually watching the film because it's it's got that sort of episodic nature about it i thought i wonder whether this would lend itself to a, a tv series i wonder if I actually this could be quite good as like a 10 hour hbo miniseries you know um if well, they put a, money it was a tv it. series i think was so, it was it yeah. oh well there you go because it feels like it, it i mean obviously from the nature of the episodic nature of the story it feels like it would lend itself to that yeah no it was a four season kind of i think the sci-fi channel made it or something like that Ah, okay i didn't know that mm. yeah with anthony michael hall as um as johnny smith oh wow and Sean Patrick Flannery as Greg uh, Stilson. I, it, it was very that kind of mid nineties episodic sci fi drama thing. Yeah, not yeah. particularly great, but um, yeah. yeah. And it, it it just got to be you know I'm psychic, so you have these vent- adventures every week. So it was just a bit a bit rubbish. Right. But, yeah, but you're yeah. right. I mean, like a ten hour Netflix or HBO thing. Absolutely, I'd yeah. love that. Yeah, sure. yeah. Because the book has so much more in it. You know. Exactly, exactly. You could, you could spend a little bit more time in all of those different plot strands, you know, that go on within this book. And I think it could that that could be pulled off really well, actually. So that would be something I'd be interested in. Yeah, because I think the film misses out something in the book that I think is very important. And that's when you first meet a Stilson. When he, I think he's a traveling Bible salesman. Aha, uh-huh, yes, yes. And there's a sequence in that, I think, where he... he I think he bl- kicks a dog to death, or he blinds a dog and murders him. It's a that's really right. that's right. Yes, yes, yes. It's, it's a great nasty. tip off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this guy is uh, psychotic, you know. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, that's that's so true. There's a, there's a, there's still a lot because actually. Cronenberg did kind of really strip it back, right? Didn't he? And mm. kind of streamlined it a little bit more, and um, and which has worked perfectly for the film adaptation. But I think it it could it it could work on the small screen actually if we uh, if we wanted to throw back in some of that stuff from the novel. Mm. And it's also getting to this point where Stephen King is writing the books the length he wants to write them. Yes. So when when they make films, there is this inevitable thing where you have to strip them back. I mean, if you read Christine and then see the film, there's so much they don't using the film yeah but that's you know what is there is christine you know and that's the genius of john carpenter he can strip away the bits that he doesn't need and say this is 
This yeah. is what this film is actually about, you know. This is what this film is actually about. Yeah, I know, amazing, isn't it? John Carpenter has got an amazing talent of stripping back a story and putting it into like a ninety-minute, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of exploitation movie or something. You know, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is your favorite John Carpenter film? Oh, I know it's such an obvious answer, but it's the thing. It's got to be yeah. the thing, you know. I, Agreed. I, I, what a perfect <laughs> film that is. Um, but I love, you know. I've, I've I've spoken to somebody recently about you know what's been the best kind of consecutive run of films that a director has had and and Carpenter's is definitely up there in terms of that sort of era right where he went from uh you know sort of a, a sort and precinct thirteen to Halloween mm. to thing to Escape from New York to you know Big Trouble in Little China the all fog, the way through to yeah, yeah the fog all, all the way through to uh sort of maybe um that's a, yeah that's an interesting question what Prince is of last, Darkness what is the last one? great John Carpenter film yeah it might be yeah. it might be Prince of Darkness I, I you know I, I would say one. um yeah. it would say in the mouth of mad I would say in the mouth of madness mm. but I think there were a couple of duds in between you know <laughs> before he came back to in the mouth of madness so uh, yeah yeah, yeah. He had to go through the ghosts of mars uh, period first which yes is just, uh, exactly uh, exactly but but you know he did have an absolutely incredible run and uh you know he's yeah he's you know it's hard to pick no, a favorite out of some of those yeah. no i can't really think of any other director who's had kind of a similar a similar strand of of hits maybe i don't know not even wes craven i don't know it's... no wes craven is actually very up and down with his filmography yeah. um he, he he manages to make a kind of stone cold masterpiece sort of every decade that kind of defines <laughs> that decade right i mean like you think last house on the left is the sort of quintessential sort of 70s exploitation movie then you've got Elm Street, which is the kind of quintessential 80s teen movie, and then Scream, the quintessential 90s movie. But he did have a lot of kind of other duds in between all of these. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah exactly. Absolutely shocking. shocking. I know, exactly, yeah. So, yeah, but but yeah, Carpenter, he had a hell of a run, that's for sure. Yeah. I suppose Kubrick is probably, and I don't know. Well, and but actually, again, Kubrick's got... <laughs> I've got to, to be honest, I've got to say Cronenberg, maybe, as well. I mean, actually, sure. if you look at Cronenberg, where you go rabid the bro- well shivers rabid the brood scanners videodrome the dead zone the fly dead ringers that's pretty impressive isn't it and then and then he goes to naked well I, yeah i guess some well. to naked lunch absolutely yeah, yeah 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 um and then the madam butterfly one and then and then it goes off a bit, a bit off but, but a little harder to uh, yeah yeah to yeah, yeah but um but you know incredible as well absolutely incredible so yeah they it's really what incredible kind of generation that was of sort of those emerging genre filmmakers like Carpenter and Craven and Cronenberg and all of those. Yeah, and even people who like experimented with the genre but didn't stay in it, like uh, Brian De Palma and Francis Ford Coppola, they they get their start doing horror and they kind of yeah. do it quite well and then they kind of go on to anything they want. Absolutely. And they sometimes come back to horror as well, particularly De Palma. Yes, yeah, totally. I think most of his films are basically horror. Oh, yeah. Just they've yeah. got that sort of also sort of high camp kind of feel to them as well. <laughs> but they're so a great operatic quality to <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I think john landis as well yes you're talking about streaks i mean you start with um uh well maybe kentucky Fried, uh national lapoon's animal house then american wealth in london and then he's got the twilight zone movie coming to america trading places i mean they're very Incredible. Incredible. They're all extraordinarily, you know, well made and good films, you know. Oh wow. I mean, like he manages to not only do the some of the best horror, but some of the best comedy of all time, right? Coming to America and trading places, absolutely astounding. And uh and actually American Werewolf in London is 
one of the very, very few movies, I think, that manages to balance comedy and horror so perfectly, almost completely evenly. And I think that's, there's, I could count on maybe one hand the amount of films that successfully do that, that manage to really balance comedy and horror in equal measure, you know? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I'm writing my uh, my MA thesis, as I'm sure my my uh, listeners are tired of me hearing talk, me talking about about the <laughs> Werewolf Summer of 1981, when you have like six films released about shape shifting films. Ah, yeah. And American Wolf for London is 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 it is a wonderful example of that. But so is The Howling. I think The Howling is a wonderful dry humour to it. Yes, it's great, isn't it? The Howling. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It just it just doesn't. It's just not as perfect as American Werewolf in London. <laughs> exactly. That's the problem. Maybe if the Howling had not been, you know, it 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 a always year gets earlier or a year later. Yeah, yeah. It <laughs> doesn't it? And it's I do feel sad for the Howling in that regard. Yeah, <laughs> but no, I mean, we we I mean, we can talk about the relationship between horror and comedy for for a, a long time. If because I mean, it has been with horror. I mean, throughout you go back and look at the Universal movies, and they always have comic relief in, and it, it's it's not usually very good. No. No. It's usually a couple of like you know people playing very broad local characters or working class characters, yeah, kind of commenting, "Oh blimey, did you see that werewolf last night?" and all that stuff. Exactly, exactly. But it was only like with American Wolf in London, I think they got that formula, and maybe Young Frankenstein as well. Young Frankenstein, although that's much more a comedy, isn't it? I think it doesn't really, it doesn't feel like it's trying to be scary or frightening in any way. <laughs> Whereas. <laughs> American Werewolf in London is genuinely frightening and has a couple of the best jump scares of all time as well. Whereas, you know, yeah, some of these others, they're much more comedy with horror tropes or exactly. or horror with a couple of bad, wacky gags in them or whatever. But, um, <laughs> you know, maybe The Evil Dead is another good example as well of something that is so absurd in, in, in its horror that it tips into comedy, but it balances that very, very well, I think, as well. Oh, definitely would have too. Yeah, yes. that's like a, a, a yes. lovely balance of like Tex Avery style cartoon animation horror and you know comedy. It's absolutely wonderful. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay, so um, before we before we wrap it up, I, I always ask my my guests uh, uh, this question. Firstly, uh, what, uh, what are you reading at the moment? Because we are the constant reader podcast. We're constantly obsessed with what people are reading. And also, can you recommend a book or a film at the moment that you think everybody should be watching? Uh, I have, uh, do you know, I'm, I'm, I'm. Te- I, this is shameful to be on your podcast and say this, but I, I've, I've been so rubbish at reading books recently. I just uh, like since I've, since I've been sort of adulting, I've just, I've just stopped finding time to read <laughs> books, which is terrible. But having said that, I have been recently rereading. I'm a big fan of ghost stories, and I have been rereading the M.R. James uh, ghost stories for Christmas, I think, um, which I love because they're all nice and short and it's like I can read one before I go to bed, <laughs> um, <laughs> which I absolutely love. You know, all the classics from A Warning to the Curious to, you know, A Whistle and I'll Come to You, you know, all of those brilliant ones. And they're always, yeah. always never fail to to send a shiver, send, make the hairs on the back of my neck stand <laughs> up, you know, so I, I love those. Yeah, I still have nightmares about the ash tree. That one still oh, scares the shit yeah. out. <laughs> it's horrible, isn't it? And actually, the TV oh. adaptation is really weird and horrible it's, as well. It's got yeah. spiders with the baby's faces on. Yeah, oh, really, creepy, really creepy. weird stuff there. That's um, Cronenbergian, isn't it? Yeah. It is. It is. It absolutely is. Yeah. Um, and sorry, what was the second question you asked? Uh, a book or a film you, you you think more people should be should be watching at the moment? Something to maybe Ooh. hasn't got been represented enough. You want you want to shout about? Oh goodness! Oh my goodness! Let me think about this. Oh God, there are probably so many, particularly films. Um, I'm going to say. I mean, I don't know. Maybe this is more well known these days than 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 I think it is. But uh, 
as we're recording this in December, well, coming up to December and everything's feeling mm-hmm. a little bit more Christmassy, I want to make a shout out to my, one of my favourite horror movies of all time, Black Christmas. And nice. we've we've been talking so much about John Carpenter and of course Halloween being the the the, the film that sort of launched the slasher subgenre. Yeah. But actually Black Christmas did it. You know, Black Christmas um <laughs> Black Christmas did what Halloween did. I would argue better than Halloween and it did it about 4 years earlier than Black Christmas. This very little known Canadian as well. There's a Cronenberg mm-hmm. connection there. Canadian uh horror film set at Christmas about a deranged lunatic killing sorority girls <laughs> and it's absolutely wonderful and it's chilling it's so good no I, I, I definitely I, I second and recommend that that one as well that's that and Krampus my, my two favorite uh, Christmas yes. movies yes and uh, Black Christmas of course um is directed by uh, Bob Clark mm. who's a fascinating dude he had such a again we're talking about people who can do pretty much every genre he he does like black christmas but he also does porkies yes and he does so such a weird range of kind of films you know i can't i can't believe you know you just can't believe that the guy who made porkies made black christmas because (laughs) i mean porkies is great but 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 oh sure yeah but black christmas is so restrained and it's so well directed and the suspense is so brilliant you just like it feels like a it must have been made by a master of horror craft you know yeah. in, in terms of the pacing and the execution of the scares and everything um, no, he, he, he did it all yeah he, he did well he did murder by decree like a, a historical jack the ripper movie and yes. he, he does a christmas story which is it's not well known over here but it's like one of the big american christmas films that's right yeah and that's, that's a, right yeah, and um, he did something else as well that was like a, oh, it was like a, almost like a zombie film or something. Oh, like. um, uh, Dead of Night, the Vietnam one where the yes. guy comes back. Yeah, yes. that's, that's, that's a mad film. That one, that's crazy. Yeah. Really interesting and weird. Yeah, yeah. What an what what an interesting guy, Bob Clark. Was. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> yeah. So, well, the, thank you very much. This has been absolutely wonderful to talk to you, Mike. And please. Listen, subscribe, rate, review, and download his podcast, The Evolution of Horror. Oh, it's thank you very much. My absolute favorite. I'm playing catch up at the moment, so I'm not quite caught up, but I'm <laughs> loving every episode. Is there anything else you want? You want to? You want to shout out about while, while, while we're here? Anything else you want to plug? No, no, that's fine. Just the podcast is absolutely fine. Um, yeah, you can find it in all the normal places you get your podcast. If you like Stephen King, we've covered so much Stephen King. You know, in terms of movies, we've covered The Shining, we've covered It, both versions of It. You know, mm-hmm. we've covered Carrie in this body horror series. Um, you know, we've probably done loads more than that. You know, you know, there are so <laughs> many out there, aren't there? So I'm sure if there are a lot of Stephen King fans uh, listening to this, then there's probably a lot of horror movie fans. So. Yes, I would urge you to check out uh, my podcast, Evolution of Horror. Please do. And uh, it remains for me to say goodbye and join us next month when we'll be talking to writer and academic Helena Bacon. And she's going to be talking about revival, which we talked about earlier. And again, it's one of my personal favourites, so it should be a great conversation. Join us then. Any comments or questions, write to me at the constant reader podcast at gmail.com. Goodbye. Thank you very much.